0: We are continuing the study in 1st Timothy, chapter 1. I'm going to read verses 3 through 7, and then we will talk about verse 5. As I urged you upon my departure from Macedonia, says Paul writing to Timothy, remain on at Ephesus so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies which give rise to mere speculation rather than furthering the administration of God which is by faith. But the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. For some men, straying from these things, have turned aside to fruitless discussion, wanting to be teachers of the law even though they do not understand either what they are saying or the matters about which they make confident assertions. In these five verses, Paul identifies several forms of bad or false or misleading teaching And near the end of these five verses, he explains the character and the motives driving those who teach such things, such as bad or false or misleading things. But in the very middle of these five verses is one of the most profound statements about what the focus or goal of teaching in the body of Christ is supposed to be. This is the only place that such a statement like this exists, and our focus today will be on verse 5. Let's pray. Father God, take just this simple sentence, give us insight into it, an understanding of it, but... More than that, practical application and a heart and a mind that wants to apply it. I do pray this in Christ's name. Amen. The first part of verse 5 states that love is the goal or the desired outcome of the various forms and formats of Christian teaching. And there are many forms, many formats. And this goal is in contrast to the uh, bad or false or misleading teaching that Paul was urging Timothy to put a stop to in the church there at Ephesus. The second part of verse 5 deals with the kind or quality of heart, conscience, and faith needed to live according to the genuine love that the scriptures teach so, this is what we're going to look at today, and we'll start with the first part of verse 5. The goal of our instruction is love. Why is love the goal of Christian teaching? Why is love to be the goal of where church leaders lead the people? Why is love to be the goal of Bible studies and youth group meetings and Sunday school classes? Because living a life ruled by love and treating the people in your life according to love is the most all-encompassing, comprehensive way to live a godly life. You can't do any better than that. For example, love, love is to make up the whole of our relationship with God. Love the Lord your God with all your heart soul, mind, and strength. Love is to be the deciding factor in how you treat those around you. Love your neighbor as yourself. These are the two great commandments. There's nothing greater than those two. And love is to rule over our thoughts, words, and deeds so that it becomes natural for us so that it becomes natural for us. Think about that. Love is to rule over our thoughts, words, and deeds, so that it becomes natural for us to want to live according to love. Before we can live according to love, however, we have to know what love is. And we have a culture and a whole array of media, songs, movies, etc., books, that have all kinds of explanations or show various forms of what love is. I think that it is important for us to have a succinct definition of love. And the definition that I've settled on, it took me some number of years, I'm not defending this definition i'm not saying you have to agree with it i'd like you to but uh, you may have to figure this out for yourself but this definition that i've settled on is love seeks the good of everyone who is in any way affected by my choices and behavior i include the word everyone love is seeking the good of everyone because If I seek your good, and you're part of a community, and we are in this room all part of a community, if I seek your good, then I need to seek your good in a way that protects the good of the whole community. I need to seek everyone's good. You know, when I pour antifreeze down the uh, drain out in the road, yes, you know, it goes into the sewer system and something happens to it, but I'm not seeking the good of the community when I do that. There's all kinds of ways in which love calls us to behave that seeks the good of everyone, not just a select few. So love seeks the good of everyone who is in any way affected by my choices and behavior. So you may be wondering why we need a definition of love after all. Love seems to well up within us of its own accord. When I fell in love with Barbie, you know, I didn't think it all out. It just kind of was there. So why a definition? It also seems that love comes and goes. Comes and goes. Knowing, uh, having lived with Barbie for 52 years, I can tell you that uh, before I worked out a definition of love and began to live by what I deem the standard of love, my love could come and go. If she was uh, good to me, I was good to her. If she wasn't so good to me, well, I, I could be not so good to her. That's hardly loving. I believe that the definition of love helps us because there are times when it is difficult to know what love should do. And there are times when it is difficult to be loving toward certain people or in certain situations. And especially when they haven't treated us the way we want to be treated. And yet, God's word makes it clear that love is to be no less love and seeking the good of others is to be nothing less than seeking their good. Even if we are with an enemy or a persecutor or an unjust boss or an abuser of power or a willfully sinful Christian or an unloving spouse or a wayward child. Love is to be no less love in those situations. And so to love as love requires, and I do believe love has its own requirements, To love as love requires, we must first and foremost take love out of the feelings and emotions category and make it a choice. An intelligent, an intentional, a deliberate and sometimes gracious choice. It's a choice to seek the other's good regardless of their treatment of us or what it costs us. Love can be costly and we are called to love, as I said already, our enemies. And that's the reason we need a definition. A definition for me clearly defines love's standard so that we can fashion or gauge or judge our thoughts, our words, our deeds according to that standard. It has, it's something that you can carry with you. And then you can use as you're listening to yourself or you're thinking about what you're about to do or you're observing what you are doing and you can decide, is this within the boundaries of love or is it outside those boundaries? For example, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, 4 through 8, which is read at uh, many weddings and well it should be. Though not a clear-cut definition, it does provide the kind of information that helps us Understand what love is and what it isn't, both sides. So listen as I read the scripture, and I'm going to put the emphasis on the is and is not. Love is kind. Love is not jealous. Love does not brag. Love is not arrogant. Love is not jealous. Love does not act unbecomingly. Love does not seek its own. It isn't selfish. It isn't self centered. Love is not provoked. It isn't uh, touchy. Uh, It doesn't wear its feelings on its sleeve, so to speak. It doesn't take offense easily. It is not provoked. Love does not take into account a wrong suffered. It doesn't return evil for evil. It isn't bitter or resentful because of the way it's been treated. Love does not rejoice in righteousness. But love does rejoice with the truth. Love bears all things. It goes the distance. It's willing to sacrifice to put up with what we wouldn't normally want to put up with. Love believes all things. It hopes all things. It endures all things. Love never fails to act like love. Well, 1 Corinthians 13 is God's word and a powerful statement about love. For me, it's not as succinct or comprehensive as I would like a definition for love to be. And so I use the one I've given you. Love is seeking the good of everyone who is in any way affected by my choices and behavior. So with this definition in mind, I want to review some of the scriptures that speak about love because they give practical application to the definition of love. And I want to start with Romans chapter 13 verse 10. This is a great statement, and it's easy to understand and easy to apply. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. By the way, that's just the negative way of saying love only seeks the good of a neighbor. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Okay, so when you hear the word neighbor, don't think of the person next door to your home. Think of the person you live with, the person you work with, the person you drive down the road with. Your neighbor is everybody around you. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. You can't keep the law any better. You can't do what God requires any more than to do no wrong to a neighbor. When this scripture says love does no wrong to a neighbor, it does not mean love never says no to a person's desires or requests. Love does say no sometimes, because that's what's in the best interest. That's what seeking the good of another person ought to do in that setting. It doesn't mean that love never disciplines or punishes misbehavior. Love even puts a person in prison to protect the good of the whole society. It doesn't mean that love never leads to a neighbor feeling guilty or embarrassed or ashamed over inappropriate behavior. It doesn't mean that love does not require a neighbor to study or be responsible or work hard or be self-controlled because those are good things to require. And once again, I want to reinforce the idea that love is not just loving a single individual, it's loving the community. So that we never love a single individual at the expense of the community. I can love at my own expense, but I ought not to love somebody in this room at everybody else's expense in this room. That's not love. Love seeks the good of everyone. Moving on to Romans chapter 12, verse 9. It says, let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. In other words, love is to be single-minded. That is, we are to let love be free of anything that would dilute or alter it or act contrary to it. Love is, by the way, single-minded. Love is not hypocritical. We are the ones that bring hypocrisy into it. That's why it starts with let, or the word allow could be put there. Allow love to be without, to be free of hypocrisy. Don't bring that into love. For example, don't let love become a mixture of love and selfishness. Well, that's their old challenge, isn't it? Don't let love Be a mixture of love and manipulation. Or don't let love be a mixture of love and ungodly anger. Or love and insensitivity. Or love and unfaithfulness. Or love and unkindness. And do not let love become a mixture of love and resentment or bitterness either. Why would we have resentment and bitterness? Well, we are likely to have that because we've been giving love but not getting love back the way we want it. And then we start feeling ripped off, cheated. And it's easy to let love become a mixture of love and resentment and bitterness. For me, one of the most effective ways to keep love pure or single-minded is to abhor what is evil. The weakness of reading the statement is that we are so adept, so good at abhorring what is evil in other people. But if you want to be single-minded in relation to love, you have to abhor what is evil first within yourself. Secondly, in your behavior. What's coming out of yourself? And after that, in others. If we would hate what is evil in ourselves, our thoughts that are evil, our intentions that are evil, our inclinations, our desires, our Ill, the ill will that wa- wells up within us when somebody mistreats us, if we would abhor those things, we would not let them stay within us. So abhor what is evil. Yeah, you want... To keep love pure and single-minded, abhor what is evil first and foremost in yourself. And cling to what is good. Notice the two words at the beginning of those statements, abhor and cling. They're strong words. They're not weak words. Abhor what is evil. That's a strong word. Cling to what is good. That means hang on for dear life. When everything around you is wanting to rip you away from what is good and get you to do something other, you have to cling. You have to hold on for dear life. And what is good? Good is determined by God's word. Good is determined by God's will and God's ways. That's why we want to read the scriptures. That's why we want to ponder what the word of God says about the ways of God. We We spent the first 45 minutes today talking about the mercy of God. That's one of his ways. He's like that. And as we understand his ways, we can bring that into our own life. That's what helps us decide what is good. But if we are going to read the scriptures... Get to know the will of God and the ways of God. We have to discipline ourselves enough to read God's Word. We have to be willing to put in the time to think about God's ways, God's will, and what the Word of God means and how to apply it. Moving on to another scripture, 1 John chapter 4, verses 10 and 11. Here's what the scripture says In this is love, or this is what love is, in other words. In this is love, not that we loved God. Our love for God is our response to the undeserved love, mercy, and grace that God has shown us. It's like, you know, you've been a really bad person, and yet Santa Claus comes at Christmas and gives you your favorite desired gift anyway. So it's undeserved. In this is love, not that we love God. Not Our response is not the epitome. It's not the standard of love. But rather that he loved us, which is his response to our willful rebellion against him. And set his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And the point here is that love's standard is not set by our response to being loved by God, but by God's response to our need. And I'm using the word need there on purpose. Love's standard is determined by God's response to our need. A need brought upon ourselves by rebellion against him. Verse 11 of 1 John 4, Beloved, if God so loved us, if he so responded to our need in spite of what we deserve, we also ought to love one another in the same way. One of the ways to think about that is, if you've accepted God's great love for you, if you've accepted this standard of love in your own life, and you're counting on that for eternal life, and for God to hear your prayers in this world and to be your provider and protector in this life, then we ought to love those around us according to the same standard. 1 John three sixteen to 18 says something almost the same way, just with a few different words, so listen as I read it. We know love, or we know what love is, by this, that Jesus laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. When did he lay down his life for us? While we were yet sinners. Christ died for us. You know, it's easy to lay your life down for someone who's laying their life down for you. It's a whole other thing to lay your life down for somebody who is not laying their life down for you, but in fact is maybe demanding even more of you. But whoever has, verse 17, 1 John 3, but whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? You see the connection between love and need? This isn't love and feelings. This isn't love and emotions. This is love in the real world. Love is seeking the good of everyone. And what am I looking for? What is their need? Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue. How easy we say, I love you. But let us love indeed in deed and truth. Let us say it with our actions. The point of this is that we need a clear, practical, and applicable definition of love because it gives us a succinct means to measure our thoughts, our words, our deeds according to the standard of love. Once again, if we depend on the feelings and emotions of love, Instead of a definition, we will love when we feel like it. But when we don't feel like it, we won't love. Going back to 1 Timothy 1, verse 5, we see that we need more than a good working definition of love. We need a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Why? Why does the scripture point out these three things? Because the condition of your heart significantly affects your willingness and ability to live according to love's standard. You may be willing to love up to a certain point. You may be willing to love in certain ways. But the condition of your heart significantly affects your willingness and ability to live according to love's Standard to love as love ought to be. Secondly, the condition of your conscience is vital to discerning when you are and when you aren't speaking or behaving according to love standard. That's that inner voice. And its condition can either help you or hurt you when it comes to living out love as we ought to love. And third, the condition of your faith significantly affects the amount of courage. This is important because to love as we ought to love will take courage. It significantly affects the amount of courage you have to love according to love standard when doing so threatens your sense of well-being or costs you more than you want to pay. And that's when you need courage. When loving threatens your sense of well-being or it costs you more than you want to pay. So let's look at each one of those, starting with the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart. In Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verse 3, and you may be wondering why in the world I'm starting with this, but bear with me, because this, in my opinion, is reality. Here's what the writer of Ecclesiastes said, The hearts of the sons of men are full of evil, and insanity is in their hearts throughout their lives so one of the things that i concluded many years ago is that sin makes us mentally ill it's a form of insanity and what the scripture says is that the hearts of the sons of men are full of evil and insanity is in their hearts throughout their lives based on my experience with myself and others And if we take the definition of the word pure seriously, I doubt any of us in this room has a pure heart. I don't doubt that many of us want a pure heart. But do we really have a pure heart? One of the biggest challenges to having a pure heart is that we are prone to be double-minded. For example... Though your general inclination may be to be godly, it's probable you still harbor in your heart forms of selfishness, pride, resentment, anger, irrational fear, impatience, immorality, unbridled passion. That means passion that isn't under control and other such things that make your heart impure. I don't know if you've really thought about your heart. When I first began to take seriously being a godly Christian, it started with looking at my actions. And I had some pretty sinful actions. And the more I began to deal with my actions, the more I began to realize what was in my head? What my thoughts were? And I had some really ungodly thoughts. And that's where uh, Philippians chapter 4, verse 8 comes in. You know, think on these things. Manage your mind. And as I began to manage my mind, as I began to, as I would call it, stand at the door of my mind and at least try to prevent the bad thoughts from coming in. And if they were already in there, throwing them back out. I realized that deep down inside of me, I had evil desires. I wanted bad things. That's what's in your heart. Now, you may not want the bad things I wanted, and that'd be great if you didn't. But my guess is, every one of us wrestles with desires that are deep inside of us, that take us away from God rather than toward God That work against love rather than make love something that is what we really want. Yeah, we want to be loved, I understand that too. But do I want to give love? And so, what is in my heart? That's the real challenge. And I don't question that many of us want what Christians ought to want but it's still likely that we still want some of the things that we ought not to want, and that's double-mindedness. That's an impure heart. An example of a double-minded heart is trying to love God as you ought while loving money because of what it does for you. And this is the USA. You know, it's very easy to love money here because we have plenty of it. And we have plenty of the things that money can buy. You know, we probably all have a phone in our pocket. It's because we have money. It's not because we need it so much. It is easy to be double-minded in our heart. Just taking this one example that the scripture gives, we're trying to love God, and at the same time, we end up loving money because of what it does for us. The less obvious example is being physically unfaithful to your marriage vows. How so? By looking and lusting in your heart for what you would like, but know you but know you ought not to have. You know, we can be faithful on the outside, physically our marriage vows and that is good and right and at the same time as Jesus said we can harbor desires for what we ought not to have and it's not only wrong to do that it's not only committing adultery already in our heart to do that but if you've ever examined your heart and your life if you harbor in your heart desires for what you ought not to have while still being faithful to something on the outside, then you realize that that harboring dilutes and hinders your ability and willingness to love as you ought. To love your spouse, according to love standard, to love your children, to love your neighbor, to love your co-worker. If I look in lust and yet remain faithful to Barbie on the outside reality is that looking and lusting promotes feelings and thoughts of discontentment, of ungratefulness for what I do have. It promotes thoughts maybe of being cheated because I see myself as giving love but not getting the love that I want back in the ways I want it. All this to say that any impurity in your heart any double-mindedness in your heart results in practicing a form of love that is not as all-encompassing or comprehensive as love is intended to be. One of the things that we can learn from scripture is how to pray about situations like this. And Psalm 51:10 provides a prayer example that we can pray ourselves. And that is, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Not easily changeable spirit. One that remains what it ought to be. The second uh, statement is, the goal of our instruction is love from a good conscience. In essence, your conscience is, first of all, that part of your being which determines the character or quality of your words actions, purposes, and affections. Then, after that, your conscience becomes an inner voice that warns against and condemns that which is wrong while approving and promoting what is right. We live in a world filled with temptations, trying circumstances, difficult people, and plenty of opportunities to feel sorry for yourself Because you're not getting what you want or believe you deserve while at the same time being told you ought to be able to have what you deserve why that's the American way in this kind of a world we need a good conscience to help us love according to love standard sadly we can sear our conscience we can harden our conscience and we do this by repeated ungodly behavior when we do this it's like putting a callus on your conscience it doesn't feel anymore the callus is between the world and your nerves and you don't feel what you ought to feel you're not sensitive to what you ought to be sensitive to and so in 1 Peter chapter 3 verse 16 we are exhorted to keep that means hang on to protect and preserve a good conscience, a conscience in good working order. And we need this so that we can love according to love standard. The last statement is, the goal of our instruction is love from a sincere faith. I've talked about faith a lot over the years, so I won't go too far with this. But the truth is, Believing that God is all-powerful, all-knowing, all-wise, always perfectly good. That his word is true. That his word shows us the path of life. Believing these things. Being confident in them. Trusting them, regardless of what's thrown at you, what comes your way, who you have to deal with. Believing these things is essential for living out love as it's intended to be lived. You have no one to protect you but you yourself. Yeah, when you're growing up, your parents can protect you. But once you're an adult, you only have you yourself to protect you. And we need God. I don't think David would have gone out to fight Goliath without being confident that God was with him. In fact, he said, I come in the name of the Lord, the God of Israel and he's bigger than you, Goliath. You need a sincere faith in who God is and what he will do for you in order to love as you ought to love. It is this kind of faith that makes us confident that we are safe in God's hands, safe enough to love as we ought to love. It's this confidence That gives us the courage and the perseverance and the strength to love as we ought to love. And there will be many situations where love is going to be costly where you are not going to get back what you gave. You're going to lose one way or the other. You'll pay the price or you're going to give and not receive. You have to have the courage the perseverance, the strength, the love in those situations, and that comes from your faith in God, a sincere faith. I'm convinced that we will only love according to love standards when we feel it is either safe or cost-effective. And you won't get to that place without believing in God. It's always safe when you are in God's hands. And it is always cost effective because what you are receiving in return is not what you get back from the other person, but what you receive from God for having loved as you ought to love. That's what makes love cost effective. Being pleasing to God and receiving His blessing in your life, His protection, His care for having loved the way you ought to love. to the degree to which you don't feel safe or don't feel the return is worth the cost, to that degree you will bring self-protection or fear of being taken advantage of or resentment over giving but not getting back what you want. You will bring those kinds of things into your acts of love and those things will decrease and degrade and cheapen the good that you're willing to do for the sake of those being loved. Love has its own standards. God is that standard. And it takes a sincere faith and a good conscience and a pure heart to love as God created us to love, to love as God teaches us to love, And to love as God sets the example for us to love.